0: We should begin this morning by mentioning that in Mark chapter 6, Jesus is about to wrap up the second of two thirds of his earthly ministry. Years one and two are about completed. The final third year of Jesus' earthly ministry is about to commence. We have already transitioned by the sixth chapter of Mark from the first period, which is known as the period of obscurity, where For the most part, Jesus was an unknown commodity. We've already progressed through the second phase of Jesus' ministry, which was known as the period of popularity, where Jesus is drawing to himself huge crowds that are anxious to see miracles, without a doubt, but also to hear Jesus speak God's word. Mark chapter 3, verse 6 tells us that the seeds of this third and final period of opposition have already been sown, with the religious establishment partnering with an unlikely uh, partner, the religious establishment with the political establishment, hatching a plot to execute Jesus. Mark 3, verse 6, we see this assassination plot hatched. The only thing standing in their way was Jesus' continued popularity amongst the people at large. The people knew this dastardly deed they knew that the only thing prohibiting them from arresting Jesus and executing Jesus was the mob. The people loved Jesus. They rallied behind Jesus. They were drawn to Jesus. And as long as Jesus' approval ratings were high, they knew there was no way for them to arrest Christ. Now, we're going to see in this chapter the perception of Jesus' popularity, of his popular opinion— begin to erode, starting with a trip home to Nazareth. Verse 1, chapter 6. Then Jesus went out from there. It's been a while since we've been in the Gospel of Mark. So there speaks of the region of Galilee, which is where Jesus, for the most part, centered his ministry. So he leaves Galilee, and he came to his own country, speaking of Nazareth. And his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, Jesus began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Jose, Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. Now we're going to start, as we have in the past with our scene of activity. Jesus is on a return visit to the hometown of Nazareth. Since his last trip home, which you should note probably occurred between Mark chapters 1 and 2, and the details of which are recorded for us in Luke chapter 4, Jesus has not only become a well-known commodity, but Jesus is rolling from town to town to town with a posse, an entourage of disciples, A detail, you should note, that was absent from his first trip home. Now, though the idea of Jesus traveling with disciples seems innocent and kind of obscure enough, this development, Jesus traveling with disciples, it generated a significant reaction among the residents of Nazareth. Let me take a second and explain why this detail that Jesus is traveling with disciples would have been so offensive to the hometown folks. The formal religious education afforded at the local synagogue consisted for every Jewish male in two phases. First, there was what was called Beth Safir. Now, Beth Sefir, the first stage of Jewish education, focused on the written law. All the young students, all the young Jewish boys would go to the synagogue, and they would focus on memorizing the written law. The first five books of your Bible, the Pentateuch, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they would focus on memorizing. Now, that was quite a task. And if the best of the best completed that first phase, showed uh, some resolve, showed some brightness, showed some intelligence, they would move to the second phase, which was known as Beth Midrash. Now, Beth Midrash focused not on the written law, but now on the oral law. In addition to continuing through their study of the Old Testament history, at this point they would also begin to familiarize themselves with not scripture, but the extra-rabbinical writings. The oral traditions passed down, and there were many. Now the only higher learning of the day came in a third and final stage when a young man, after completing the first two stages and showing prominence promise, would continue his studies at the feet of a rabbi. He would be called to study with a rabbi. These advanced studies focused primarily on the interpretation of the law. So the first phase was studying the written law. The second phase was studying the oral law or the oral traditions. And then this third phase, studying at the feet of a rabbi, would focus on that rabbi's interpretation of the law to the point that most people, when they would comment on scripture, it wouldn't be so much speaking with authority, but they would comment, well, so-and-so rabbi, they interpret this passage as this, and this rabbi interprets this passage as this. That's why when Jesus taught and he didn't share the opinions of the rabbis, but he said, this is what the passage is saying, they were like, wow, that's authority that we've never observed before. Now, if you were chosen for this final stage of education, and few were, very few people made it to this point, you would be formally referred to as the disciple of such and such a rabbi. A disciple's relationship with their rabbi probably should best be interpreted or described as kind of a first century internship. Only after years of interning with a rabbi, training, being mentored, would a disciple finally be appointed the, a rabbi in their own right and thus would be able to call disciples to be followers? This is why when Jesus returned to Nazareth, the first time he had no disciples, he went into the synagogue, he taught, that was fine. The second time he returns, he returns not just to teach in the synagogue, but he Returns with followers, with disciples, and the people of Nazareth. They were left wondering. They were kind of left scratching their head. Since Jesus had never been discipled, the question on everyone's mind was how and when did Jesus become a rabbi? Have you ever thought of that? We kind of almost take that for granted, that Jesus was a rabbi. How did Jesus become a rabbi? With what authority was he given that privilege? Yes, he was accepted as a rabbi, but how did it happen? Those from the hometown, they were the ones that questioned this. Now, Mark also tells us that after hearing Jesus speak, they're even more perplexed. They ask, look again, where did this man get these things? Like, like where, where was he taught these things? How does he have this knowledge? And what wisdom is this which is given to him? that such mighty works are performed by his hands. Is this not the carpenter? Now understand, this skeptical attitude towards Jesus, it welled up, it was birthed from a skeptical perspective of Jesus. I'll repeat that. The skeptical attitude towards Jesus was birthed from a skeptical perspective of Jesus. Their perspective of Jesus created a skeptical attitude towards Jesus. The people of Nazareth, they knew Jesus, the retired carpenter, but they didn't know Jesus, the rabbi. Mark tells us that the locals were offended at him. The word offended is the Greek word skandalizo, from which we get our English word scandal. Jesus coming to town as a rabbi, With disciples. When those in Nazareth only knew him as a carpenter, Mark tells us this became a scandalous affair. Now please note, because sometimes people take this fact that they were offended at him, and they twist it into kind of a a license. I know people that, that, well, Jesus offended people. And because Jesus offended people, I have the right to be offensive, that I can say things that that really my calling, my anointing is to be a jerk for Jesus. The problem is, is that that's not actually true. Note, the people were not offended by Jesus, but they were offended at Jesus. It wasn't what he said that rubbed them the wrong way. It was who he was that caused such a strong reaction. Understand, Jesus and his work in your life is going to naturally offend a lot of people. But people will be offended at Jesus, not by Jesus. It's a difference. Now, since the townsfolk were certain that Jesus had never been discipled by a rabbi, the natural question, like their natural inclination here as to how Jesus, a carpenter by trade, received his scriptural training. It's actually relevant. Like the folks sitting there seeing Jesus come in with these disciples wondering, wait a second, he was a carpenter when he left. He's returning as a rabbi, But we look at our sundial, and there's not a lot of time that's passed. He hasn't been discipled. How did he become, where did he get his training? Where did he get his education? How does he know these things? Like, the people sitting there thinking, where did he get his biblical training, was relevant. As a matter of fact, it's so relevant, we should also take a moment and consider something I don't think many of us have ever thought about. How did Jesus gain his scriptural understanding? How did Jesus know what he knew concerning the Bible? Was it just because he was God? That Jesus, as the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in the manger, had like a systematic theology already buttoned down and he's just waiting to learn language to be able to communicate it? No. We're told in many places that Jesus grew and he learned and he developed. So how did Jesus learn and grow and develop a biblical understanding? First, The case can be made that Jesus received his theological training at church. Now, in that day, it was referred to mainly as the synagogue, but it's a place of gathering, which is what church is. I don't think I'm going out on a limb when I say that Jesus, from my estimation, was incredibly intelligent. I don't think anyone's going to really argue with me on that particular point. That Jesus was smart. As a young Jewish male attending school at the local synagogue there in Nazareth, I am confident, without a shadow of a doubt, that Jesus excelled in his study of Scripture. In these two phases of normal religious education, I think Jesus was a straight-A student, top of the class, the honor roll. Now, that's just not my assumption. There is some evidence to point to that. You don't have to turn there, I'll read for you. But in Luke, we're told concerning a 12 year old Jesus that they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and answering their questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. The only thing we really know concerning Jesus' developmental years is not only was he bright but Jesus was a dedicated churchgoer. Jesus, he loved joining the people of God weekly and the worship of God and the study of God's word. Often we're told concerning Jesus that he would enter a synagogue on the Sabbath and then we're told as was his custom. Of all we know concerning Jesus the boy is that Jesus loved to go to church that he faithfully and regularly attended the house of God. And what did he do? He learned and he grew his biblical understanding. His biblical teeth were cut at church. Now, before we look at the second point here that I want to make, I do want to pause and address another relevant question before we get too far ahead of ourselves. Have you ever wondered or considered when looking at the profile of Jesus' life, and maybe even a timeline, how Jesus goes from being an excelling student at the age of 12 to a carpenter when we see him again at the age of 30. Have you ever thought, like, okay, if Jesus was an excelling student, working his way up, showing promise at the age of 12, then at the age of 30, how did Jesus become a carpenter? Like, what happened? Why the transition? Now, aside from the fact that most of this period of Jesus' life is only left up to speculation and conjecture, the question becomes further complicated when you examine it in the context of first century culture. When a young man no longer had the chops to stay up with the curriculum, what happened? Well, he was asked to leave school, to go home, and to learn his father's trade. It was kind of doing the kid a favor. Listen, you're not book smart. You're not going to make it in the religious educational system. You need to go to a vocational school. You need to go home. You need to figure out whatever your dad's doing, and you need to figure out how to do that to make a living. Now, there are those that speculate and theorize that because Joseph was a carpenter, that maybe Jesus was a dropout. I mean, that seems logical when it comes to first century culture, that Jesus goes from being a promising student at the age of 12 to a carpenter at the age of 30 because he just didn't have what it took. Now, let's be honest, that doesn't seem very feasible. That doesn't seem very actual. It actually seems unlikely. I think there's another possibility that seems more scripturally consistent. If the father of the family died the burden to provide for the family would automatically fall to the firstborn son. Most scholars believe that somewhere between Jesus' 12th birthday and his 30th birthday, that Jesus would have to leave his studies behind to provide for the family at home because Joseph died. Now this would explain, obviously, why we don't see Joseph after Jesus's twelfth birthday. We don't see Joseph mentioned much in uh, the pages of the Gospels, much in the narrative of Jesus's life after his twelfth birthday. We have no mention of him at the crucifixion or the resurrection. Though it's the mother Mary, we have her present. Joseph walks off the pages of Scripture. Most scholars believe. That Joseph passed away, thus explaining why Jesus goes from being a promising student to a carpenter because he had to provide for his family, of which we're told here was kind of numerous. In addition to Mary, his mom, Jesus also had four brothers and at least, at a minimum, two sisters. Mark tells us that his sisters were pl- present, at least two. That means there are six kids in the house, in addition to Jesus, in addition to Mary, that Jesus would have to provide food for them. It would also shed some light, this theory, as to why the folks in Nazareth referred to Jesus, note in our, in our passage, as the son of Mary. Understand, that's kind of bizarre. It's a very weird reference if you're familiar with the Bible at all or the genealogies that you often skip when reading through the Scripture. People are often referred to, customarily, as the son of their father, never really their mother. It could be that because Joseph had died and Jesus taking the mantle for the family had just become customarily known around town as the son of Mary because Joseph was long gone and his memory had faded. Either way, regardless, we can say for certain that referencing Jesus as the son of Mary was kind of a dig, right? From the beginning, though we know that Mary conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, and everyone was aware that Joseph wasn't the dad, the people of Nazareth always theorized that Jesus, he's not the son of God, but rather a fatherless bastard child is how most people viewed him in town. So saying he's the son of Mary, yes, that could be a reference to the death of Joseph, but either way, it's definitely a dig at the scandal or the mystery surrounding the origins of Jesus' birth. Now, back to our initial question. How did Jesus receive his theological training? One, he received it at church. Two, Jesus received his theological training on his own. Now, though Jesus was likely forced from his full-time studies in the synagogue or at the feet of a rabbi to come home to work as a carpenter, I think it's safe to assume that Jesus never abandoned His study of Scripture. Every time he comes to Nazareth, he goes to the synagogue and he's asked to teach, to share from the Scripture. Jesus continued his study on his own. Instead of a formal education, Jesus learned at the feet of his heavenly Father with the influence of the Holy Spirit. Now this leads to an initial observation our first observation, that maybe we should rethink our own theological training. I think the case can be made, seeing Jesus as our ultimate example, that adequate theological training isn't and shouldn't be limited to a formal institution. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not going to say that seminary or Bible college doesn't have a place or a role I think if you have the opportunity to be able to go and and to set aside time to get a formal theological education, great. That's wonderful. No knocks on that. I graduated from a Bible college. But, and this is the point, as with Jesus, every one of us, even if we can't go to seminary, still have two readily available resources, the same resources Jesus had at our disposal, In regards to studying the Bible, the first point we need to make is that you should regularly attend a Bible teaching church. If you want to take Jesus as your example for how to get a theological training, to how to know the Bible, to how to dig into scripture, first, attend a church that teaches the Bible. Faithfully attending a church that faithfully teaches God's word, I promise you, it will have an incredible benefit to your understanding of the Bible. Most of my theological training didn't actually come from Bible college, but came by attending a church that taught expositionally, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the whole counsel of God, sitting there learning, growing, developing an actual understanding. Now now the key, the key is finding a church that teaches the Bible. Most churches today, sadly, teach common, elementary, topical studies, that really failed to move a person from the milk of the word into the meat of scriptural understanding. Hopefully, you find at Calvary 316 a place where the Bible's taught and you can grow in your understanding. But the second thing that you have at your disposal, aside from church, is also the ability to study the Bible on your own. I hope you understand. And if you don't, I exhort you that your study of God's Word should not be limited to a a one-day-a-week church service. Any more than a growing child should be limited to a a one-day-a-week diet. It's impossible to be healthy. You need to study the Bible on your own. Now understand what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that substitute study for simple reading. Sometimes people in Christian circles, they think that a devotional book that has one verse at the top and kind of a fun thought on one page to follow as studying the Bible. Like, man, I had my daily devotion today. Now, I think that's fine. I think that's good. But don't don't see that as study, because it's not. It's not at all. As a Christian, you should be making a habit of not just reading the Bible, but studying the Bible. The Apostle Paul told Timothy, he said, Study, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that need not be ashamed, that has the ability to rightly divide the word of truth. May I encourage you to move beyond panning for the flakes of truth and instead mine deeper for the nuggets of lasting value Anybody can pan for a few flakes here and there. But it takes work. It takes effort. It takes resolve to open up your Bible, to move beyond just a fun thought here or there, and dig into Scripture. Mining is difficult. In today's information age that places an unlimited amount of excellent resources at your fingertips, I hope you know that studying the Bible has never been easier. It really hasn't. When I was in Bible college, to really study the Bible in an in-depth fashion, in addition to your Bible, I mean, you needed your Strong's Concordance and you needed like four other gigantic books. And it was like, you couldn't just go to Starbucks and study the Bible because you were carrying a library with you. What's interesting is your tablet has a library. Like so much resource is available at your fingertips for you to study. Influenced by the power of the Holy Spirit, equipped with a Pandora station of good jazz music, a quiet place for reflection, equipped with your Bible, a resource like blueletterbible.org that makes Strong's Concordance irrelevant, a few free online commentaries like the ones you'll find at enduringword.com, and an unlimited amount of free audio resources from awesome Bible teachers. You can dig into the meat of God's word on your own. It's easy. It's simple. But you know, when it's all said and done, I have found that the key to Bible study, it's not having resources available. It's not having the, the ability. You're pretty smart people. It really boils down to desire, doesn't it? It boils down to Desire. Are you willing to make Sunday a priority for you and your family? You know, the one drawback to teaching verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through a book of the Bible, like we're doing here with the Gospel of Mark, is that if you miss a week or a couple weeks, you come back a little lost. Because when you're traveling verse by verse, chapter by chapter, you're kind of building off of each chapter, each passage, each train of thought. Faithfully attending. Coming, having your Bible, setting aside the hour and a half on Sunday morning to study a book of the Bible, it's valuable. Are you willing to make it a priority? Do you have the desire? Are you also willing to set aside an hour here or there throughout the week to study on your own? Contrast the amount of football you watch with how much you study the Bible. It'll show you where your heart is. Now, that's not to say that watching football isn't glorious and awesome. But so is studying the Bible. That's kind of the point. Dig into the word on your own. If it was important for Jesus, going out on a limb here, if it was important for God, I think it should be important for us. Now, the second observation I want to make from these six verses, and this might be simple, but I find it profound. Jesus was a carpenter. Have you really thought about that? The idea that Christianity was started by a carpenter, understand, it's been used throughout centuries to be an insult to Christianity. Like it would be like joining a religion today started by your plumber. I mean, obviously room for some criticism. But I find the fact that Jesus was a carpenter to be pretty awesome, actually. I love the fact that Jesus had a blue-collar job. The word carpenter is the Greek word tekton, from which we get our word skill, like a skilled laborer. Jesus was more than just a framer or a genetic day laborer. The word indicates that he was a carpenter. The word indicates that Jesus was a craftsman. He was a woodworker. Jesus would have been best buds with Ron Swanson. If you don't have that reference, it's Parks and Rec. Watch it. It's pretty funny. Now, though we can't prove this particular theory, Justin Martyr, an early church father, stated that Jesus' specialty, his skill, was handcrafting plows and yokes for local farmers which would be really interesting when you read some of the passages where Jesus tells his disciples, my yoke is, is easy, my burden is light. That Jesus would look at the, the animals and he would handcraft a particular yoke that would allow those two animals to walk lockstep together. It's just a theory, but I love the idea. The fact that Jesus was a carpenter by trade, to me it's significant for 3 reasons. First, it tells us that Jesus likes to build things. Should this come as a surprise to any of us? According to John chapter 1, Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, was instrumental. He was hands-on in the creation process. According to Genesis chapter 1, Jesus spoke all matter into existence and then took this matter and he made everything. He made the world. He fastened things and built things. Jesus was a craftsman even from the beginning. Scripture tells us that Jesus was and always has been a builder. In the beginning, he created the world. Today, what is he doing? He's actively building the church by rebuilding the lives of fallen people. In the future, Jesus is going to rebuild a devastated world By creating a new order with a new kingdom, a new government, and a new Jerusalem. What is Jesus doing right now? Well, we're told that he went to prepare a place for us, that Jesus is building for you and I in our eternity. As the first century carpenter, think about it. Jesus enjoyed. This is what he did for more of his life than anything else. Jesus loved to take a piece of unfinished, raw, maybe damaged, or discarded lumber. He loved taking it back to his shop, where he would slowly and sometimes painstakingly craft it into something useful, something beautiful, something unique. It's an incredible picture. Today, nothing brings Jesus greater joy then taking the life of a man or woman lost in sin, maybe damaged by the world, discarded, unfinished, raw, redeeming that person to himself, providing a future, using his imagination for a hope, and then taking the time to craft him or her into something useful and unique for his purposes. Jeremiah viewed us as as clay in the hands of a potter. Thinking of Jesus as the carpenter, carpenter, you're a block of wood in the hands of the master. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, he says, and this takes new meaning for me with this in mind, that we are what? Are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So first, Jesus, as a carpenter, likes to build things. Secondly, as a carpenter, from my perspective, it it makes Jesus very identifiable, very relatable. As a carpenter, Jesus was a normal guy. He wasn't removed from the everyday man. It wasn't as though that Jesus came to appeal, to run in circles of the academic or the religious Jesus didn't come as a politician. He wasn't a suit and tie kind of guy. Jesus was a man of the working class. He knew what it was like to earn a living with his hands and the sweat of his brow. Jesus was the blue-collar man for the blue-collar man. Every day, Jesus would rise before daybreak. He would drink his cup of Folgers. Duncan wasn't around at that point. Jesus would put on his Carhartt overalls, slip on his Georgia boots, load up his pickup truck and head to the shop. And what would he do? He would spend the day working with his hands till the sunset, providing for his family, putting food on the table. Jesus did what you do every day which makes him so identifiable. It also tells me as being the carpenter that Jesus was pretty manly. Now I'm not saying manly in like some cheesy machismo kind of kind of way, but like genuine biblical manliness. I've been reading a book recently titled Why Men Hate Going to Church. It's a fascinating book. And in it, one of the contributing factors as to why we see an exodus of male involvement in the modern church is the neutering of Jesus that has taken place in a progressive, touchy-feely brand of popular Christianity. Today, less than 40% of adults attending church this morning are male, with about a quarter of married women attending without their husbands should it come as no surprise to anyone that by presenting Jesus as a soft, meek, in some ways effeminate man who promoted peace and love, Jesus the hippie, instead of strength and resolve, that men have found it difficult to rally to his side? Now, I don't want to go on a tangent here, But in this book, there's a lot of data and evidence to point that this is one reason that in the inner city of America, young black males without father figures are gravitating predominantly towards Islam and not Christianity because of the strong, male-dominated role of Muhammad versus the wimpy, pansy presentation of Jesus. The same is true in many third world countries as well, where people are longing for a leader, and not necessarily a wimpy Savior. Understand, as a carpenter, Jesus defies many of our preconceived opinions of Him. Yes, Jesus was loving and Jesus was a peacemaker, but Scripture presents Jesus as being equally strong, creative, courageous, even rugged. Jesus Jesus was the ultimate man's man. We get in our minds these pictures of Jesus as a first century Fabio walking with neatly pressed robes and sashes through the fields, right? With perfectly blown, drawn hair making its way with a very light, pale complexion. We get this, this curly picture of Jesus. But understand, it couldn't be further from the truth. Jesus, what Jesus looked like, we don't know much, but as a carpenter, let me tell you what a carpenter looked like. Jesus would have been tan, not pastely white. He would have been tan from hours working in the sun. Jesus would have been chiseled, he would have been cut from hours planing wood. His hands, would have been calloused. Jesus would have bore scars from the wear and tear of his profession. Jesus. Jesus was a man determined, a man of resolve, a man cool under pressure, steady in the face of opposition. And this is what I like ready for a throwdown if it came to it. Jesus was ready to enact a beatdown if it was necessary. Jesus didn't shy away from a fight. He was ready to knuckle up or to make a whip or to take a rod and drive money changers out of the temple when he found it necessary. Jesus. Jesus might have laid down his life for his friends. But Jesus will come again wielding a sword seeking to take the lives of his enemies. A man's man. Though feministic elements might have popularized a neutered perspective of Jesus, never forget that Jesus was the kind of man who endeared the men of his day and men throughout the centuries to follow him, to have his back, to rally to his cause, even in the face of death. A wimpy man doesn't endear that kind of loyalty or devotion, but Jesus did. I am convinced that if we want men to re-enter the ranks of the church, it's time we get back to an accurate portrayal of the man, Christ Jesus. He was a builder. He was identifiable to the common man. Jesus was a man's man, worthy of our allegiance, devotion, and loyalty. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. My third observation is that Jesus was not deterred by rejection. In addition to the neutering of Jesus, Bible students can often fall prey to the common mistake of dehumanizing Jesus. Sometimes we do that, not intentionally, but just kind of accidentally. Understand that Jesus experienced the same kind of human emotions that you and I grapple with every day. Scripture tells us that he experienced happiness and sorrow, joy and grief, excitement and disappointment. Jesus knew the gratification of acceptance, but as we see, that Jesus also was intimately aware of the misery that comes with rejection. For a moment, I want you to read between the words of our passage. And imagine the natural emotions Jesus would have experienced coming home only to be rejected by his own. Though Jesus ministered to people far and wide, the one thing that was unique to Nazareth was Jesus' distinct personal history with the people of this town. It makes them a little different than everyone else. Nazareth. Nazareth was Jesus' hood. This town, Jesus would spend more of his life in the alleyways and playgrounds of Nazareth than he would any other place on the planet. Jesus grew up with these folks. He attended synagogue, went to church with them, went to school with them. Jesus even owned a business that served the needs of the community. He was in daily contact with these people. And you know, knowing what I know of Jesus, spending that much time with these people building these kind of relationships, I'm sure that Jesus had an incredible love for the people of Nazareth, which is what made their rejection of his ministry, I'm sure, so difficult. I know you're familiar with the phrase, home is where the heart is. But understand, that phrase also tells us that the pain inflicted at home, if it's where the heart is, cuts so much deeper than almost any other place. Though our text doesn't specifically state the reality, I'm sure the rejection by the hometown folks of the hometown kid, it cut Jesus deeply, passionately. It hurt. I mean, desiring their acceptance, that's only a natural human reaction. And yet, Jesus comes to Nazareth. He's hurt. He's rejected. He experiences the emotion, the pain, but look at his reaction. To me, it's telling. Mark is clear that Jesus did not allow the natural discouragement of rejection to deter him from his calling and mission. Note, we're told. Jesus quotes a proverb of the day. Prophet is not without honor, except in his own country, except by his own relatives and in his own house. And then he says, Mark tells something Mark communicates something else. It's interesting. He says, "Now Jesus, in response to their rejection, could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them." In commenting on this passage, almost every commentator I read, "They focus on the work that Jesus didn't do in Nazareth, while failing to observe the work Jesus did accomplish, though he had been rejected by the majority, There were a few people, except there were a few people that responded in faith, in belief, and had their lives forever changed by an interaction with Jesus. You know, sometimes it's easy to allow the disappointment of rejection, of being rejected, to spawn inactivity or breed apathy towards a situation. You know, many times we approach things with this all-or-nothing mentality meaning that when things don't go the way that we hoped, discouragement sets in, that just bailing, leaving, being done with it is often the most easiest reaction. We witness something different and telling with Jesus. Jesus experienced disappointment. He was hurt by being rejected. But note, Jesus looked beyond the work he could have done and instead focused on the work he could do. When you experience rejection or disappointment, when things don't work out as you wanted them to to pan, instead of just bailing, look beyond what you could have done and look, examine, move beyond the disappointment and think, what can I do? God's in control. Jesus presents a worthy example that we should follow in the face of rejection. The fourth observation is that Jesus marvels at unbelief. (laughs) Consider the magnitude of those two words. Jesus marveled. Jesus, the God of the universe, the creator of all things, found the unbelief of the Nazarenes utterly unbelievable. I mean, that's what the passage is telling us. And because of their unbelief, Mark says that Jesus could do no mighty work there. He could do nothing. Now, this is not to say that the God-man was unable to do something or that Jesus lacked the ability to do something. The idea presented is that their lack of faith was a direct inhibitor to the work Jesus could have done in their lives. It's been stated that Jesus wouldn't answer their unbelief with a work that was miraculous it's true, that you have to really do something pretty extraordinary to get this kind of reaction from God. As a matter of fact, you're only going to find in two places in the New Testament that Jesus marveled. There's only two mentions of Jesus having this reaction to something happening, that Jesus stood there in wonderment. First, we're told in the story of the centurion in Luke chapter 7 that Jesus marveled when he found faith in an unexpected place. In contrast, in Mark 6, we see Jesus marvel at the absence of faith in an expected place. Of all of the people that should have believed Jesus, the Nazarenes were at the top of the list. Their blatant unbelief, their skepticism, it was more than a surprise. It was downright shocking. We have countless examples in Scripture of Jesus working in response to a person's faith. We even have examples in Scripture of Jesus responding to a person's lack of faith. But understand, we never see Jesus working in spite of a person's unbelief. And this is important for us this morning. The absence of faith, you know, it still possesses a a genuine desire to be persuaded. That's why Jesus can still work in the midst of the lack of faith. But unbelief is different. Why? Because unbelief invokes a person's free will. Unbelief declares that I know the truth, but I am making a decision, a conscious decision, for whatever reason, to reject what I know to be true. And it is only in the presence of unbelief that Jesus refuses to intervene. There's a fifth observation familiarity doesn't guarantee faith. You have to ask yourself, why did the Nazarenes reject Jesus even in the presence of insurmountable evidence and undeniable revelation? Now, though it's only left to conjecture, maybe they were overfamiliar. maybe it was pride, could have simply been stubbornness, could have really been a number of things we're not told. But I guess the better question we should ask this morning is why do some of us Even with so much evidence pointing to the divinity of Jesus, do we still reject him as well? Either way, there's one thing we can take from this. Proximity to Jesus doesn't always guarantee faith in Jesus. Matthew provides a warning in chapter 7 where Jesus says that many will say to me in that day, speaking of the judgment, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and done many wonders in your name? then Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Being around Jesus, being close to Jesus, having proximity with Jesus, doesn't always guarantee faith in Jesus. For those of us in the Bible Belt, inundated with a Christian culture, this should come as a warning. The final observation, and this is where I want to bring things to a head this morning, is that Jesus, we find here, is willing to be rejected. Of all of the things that blow my mind, that rock my, my world from the six verses of Mark 6, is the reality. Not that the Nazarenes rejected Jesus. It's the reality that Jesus allowed them, people that he loved, people that he cared deeply about, that he allowed them to reject him. These people made a decision. Their decision was to reject Jesus. They refused his ministry in their lives. And in an interesting twist, the thing that really, it's hard to wrap your brain around is that Jesus honored their decision. By doing what? Well, we're told that he left, left Nazareth, went in a, cir- a circuit teaching in other places. Understand, Jesus would never return to Nazareth. He'd never return. Jesus made two trips in his three-year ministry. After this, he never goes back, ever. No mention of it. Now, don't don't misunderstand that Jesus didn't do everything in his power to try to persuade these Nazarenes to follow him. As a matter of fact, it should be noted that Jesus' first trip to Nazareth was a dangerous one. In Luke chapter 4, after Jesus finished teaching, we're told that all those in the synagogue, this is what they did. They were filled with wrath. They rose up. They kicked Jesus out of the city. They thrust him out. They led him to the brow of the hill in which the city was built, that they could throw him over. Of course, Jesus walked through the midst and went on his merry way. Jesus' first trip to Nazareth, and this is the point, his first trip ended with an assassination attempt. At that point, I'm like, forget you folks. I'm never coming back to Nazareth. I'm just going to go to other places. Jesus came back. Like, why? Why would Jesus come back when the first time ended with an assassination plot? They tried to throw him off a cliff. I think we can conclude that the reason Jesus came back was he loved these people enough to risk the danger associated with this trip for one last ditch effort. Maybe this will be the point where I get through. Maybe this will be the point where they hear and they respond and I can work. I can do the work I so greatly want to. Jesus had done everything in his power to draw them to himself via his patience and his love. But understand, though Jesus would do so much, there was one thing Jesus wouldn't do. The one thing that will limit the saving work of an all-powerful God, the one thing that will limit Jesus' work in your life is unbelief. It's your free will to make a decision. There are those that have a problem with the existence of hell because it paints God out to be a cruel executioner, seeking blood, seeking vengeance. There's a popular book making circles around uh, the church today called Love Wins, written by a heretic named Rob Bell. And he just has a problem. Accepting the idea that God could send people to hell forever, that that just doesn't fit with his perspective of God. Gandhi, as he would say, was such a good person. How could Gandhi go to hell? And his book theorizes that, Love wins over vengeance. There are those who have a problem with hell. And yet, when you recognize that hell, in its most simplistic definition, is the final act of man's freedom, the rejection of Jesus, the rejection of Jesus' will for a person's life, when that hell is the last final act of rejecting God and that it is God honoring man's free choice to do so? In my mind, it's hard for me to see hell then as a manifestation of vengeance, but rather, in a very weird way, a manifestation of love. You see, in many ways, I think that hell, God allowing people the freedom to reject him, it presents a really radical, pretty awesome brand of love. A love that is willing to allow rejection, to allow hurt, to allow disappointment and pain. A a love like that, it's a love that's vulnerable, isn't it? It's a love that's sincere. It's a love that's real and passionate. As a matter of fact, I think the case can be made that hell might very well be the natural and greatest manifestation of God's love to allow a person the freedom to reject him forever. God takes no joy, no delight in sending and allowing people to go to hell. God has done everything in his love to woo people to himself, to avoid hell. But his love is so genuine It won't step on your freedom. Now I want to quickly recap, and we're out of time this morning. We've covered a lot. There's a lot in six verses of Mark 6. If you want to be like Jesus, which I hope you do, uh, attend church regularly and study his word on your own faithfully. As a carpenter, as a builder, Jesus, he's always looking for remodels. That's good, because I'm a remodel. Jesus came to be identified with the common man. He's a man worthy of loyalty, worthy of devotion. Like Jesus, I encourage you this morning not to allow the disappointment of rejection to deter you from your purpose and mission as it didn't with Jesus. Instead, focus on what you can do instead of getting bogged down on what you can't. The only thing that can limit the work Jesus wants to do in your life, as we see from the Nazarenes, is unbelief. And don't mistake familiarity with Jesus doesn't always guarantee faith in Jesus. And finally, the heaviest thought is that Jesus loves you enough, so much, that he will allow you the freedom to reject him. The freedom to reject his will for your life, the work he wants to do in your heart, that Jesus will allow you to reject him, it blows my mind. Though I don't like Rob Bell, I don't know if you've picked up on that, and though I think his book is heresy, I guess I can't agree with the title. When you look at hell, when you see that it is the manifestation of us rejecting God, then maybe love does win, just in a different way. God gives you the freedom to walk out those doors and reject everything he has for you. He won't force himself upon you. As a matter of fact, he wants to do everything he can, and he will, to draw you and to woo you and to show you how much he cares about you. Jesus, a man's man, but one who loves in the greatest way. So Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all it says to us. In Jesus' name, amen.